Jazz. <laughs> well, if we're ready, welcome to Jazz Bastard Podcast 128. I'm Pat. I'm Mike. And we have a special guest with us tonight, Eric Allen. He is a co-author, and correct me if I get this wrong, of 50 Years of the Village Vanguard, Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, and the Vanguard Orchestra. Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, yeah, that's right. So close, so close. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask you... It is Thad Jones. I know he assumed it was Thad Jones because Thaddeus, as you said, but I thought, well, if I say it's Thad, Michael, tell me it should be Tad. And he knows <laughs> I'm so insecure that I never know for sure. So as, a, as an expert on that, I wanted you uh, to weigh in before he started playing those mind games with me. So tonight it's going to be a little bit different format. We're going to talk some with Eric about this book that covers the first 50 years of what is now known as the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. And then uh, we'll segue into discussing some early recordings by the first incarnation of that band, the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Big Band. The recordings we're going to look at are two uh, from back in the day, Live at the Village Vanguard from 67. Their first album presenting Thad Jones Mel Lewis and the Jazz Orchestra from 66. And those were both on solid state originally. Uh, they may have been reissued under the Blue Note banner, but that's because Blue Note ate solid state. And then much more recently, a couple of years ago, collection of early recordings of the band live called All My Yesterdays was released, and we're going to look at disc one of that. So anyway, we're really glad to have you on the show, Eric. It's been a few months kind of percolating, trying to get schedules coordinated, and we're happy that we're able to get together with you now. Mike has had a chance to look at this book in person. I've had a chance, through your kind help, to look at a chapter of it and selections from it. And I guess we just begin by asking, and Mike may have some smarter questions than I do, but just kind of in general, how the project came together, how that process of co-authorship worked, and kind of what inspired, uh, other than the anniversary, which of course I think was probably part of it, uh, you guys to kind of write a book about this organization. Yeah, well, first of all, my co-author, Dave Lissick, and I, we were grad students together at the University of Northern Iowa about 20 years ago, and we played in the school's big band, obviously. We were teaching assistants. And, you know, throughout college, we played some of Thad and Mel's music and obviously really loved it. After grad school, we always stayed in touch. And, you know, we were always talking about the latest albums by the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. Dave, in his position, he teaches in New Zealand at the New Zealand School of Music. He teaches jazz composition. And every summer, he also runs a New Zealand youth jazz orchestra. And through that, he's had several of the members of the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra over to New Zealand as guest artists. So he got to know some of them personally. As I mentioned, we kept in touch about what the band was up to. We'd always talk about it. And leading up to the 50th anniversary, we were talking about that. And I was telling Dave, man, it's too bad there's not a website where you can you know, see all of the band's albums, see who is in the band, what years, see pictures, posters, and things like that. And Dave said, well, why just a website? Why not do a whole book? And at the time, I was just finishing another book project, an extensive study on body and soul, a bunch of transcriptions and analysis. And I was just up to my eyeballs in that. And I told him, man, I just don't have time. But Dave was persistent. He kept on me. And finally, I said, "Okay, we'll do it. We talked to the band. We convinced them to let us run with the project. And the rest was kind of history. I 
went to New York and covered about four out of the eight days of the 50th anniversary, started the interview process, took a lot of photos, and then we were off and running. One thing you mentioned wanting to talk about was how the dual authorship process worked. Sure, if you'd like to talk a little bit about the process, just a little bit, uh, how your collaboration worked with your co-author. So because of the fact Dave is living in New Zealand, I did some of the heavy lifting on the front end, like I mentioned, um, going to downbeat, scanning pictures, covering the 50th anniversary, getting photos, things like that. But once we did that, we and we had a framework for the book and knew what our chapters were going to be. We, we split them up. I think there were about 14 chapters. We each took like seven. We each did a first draft of them, put it on Google Docs, and then if I had any changes, they would be in orange. If Dave had any changes, they would be in purple. And we'd just go back and forth online. And once we both agreed on something, we changed it to black and we were good to go. And then once we had the text finalized, we would send the text and the appropriate pictures to our designer. He did an amazing job. His name is Ryan Olbrich, and he would generate the chapters. So this is truly a project that, that couldn't have happened in the pre-internet age for sure. Yeah, and the, the layout shows that I, I've not seen the whole book as Mike has, but it, it is really thoughtfully put together and laid out. I mean, it's a pleasure to look through because there is so much information. If you don't have a good designer, it can things can get cluttered really quickly. Oh, what was amazing about what Ryan did before he even, he wasn't familiar with the band going in, but he asked me to put together some playlists for him, select some videos on YouTube so he could get familiar with the band and their vibe and really take it all in. And once we sent him pictures and texts, like 95% of what he sent back the first time was like, that was it. That was what was in the book. I think the only exceptions were when I accidentally forgot to tell him about a photo not being available or I had changed, we had changed our mind on something, but he just, he totally nailed it. And with, without him, this wouldn't have turned out nearly as, as well as it did. Well, that's awesome. Okay. So Eric, if people want to get a hold of uh, this book, which is just a, a treat, a wonder, it's a fantastic book. How do they do it? How do they get a hold of 50 years at the Village Vanguard, Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, and the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra? It is available exclusively at skydeckmusic.com. And if people order fairly soon, we do have a number of signed limited edition, first edition copies available, which have both authors' signatures and are numbered and certified as first edition. So again, skydeckmusic.com. Cool. Cool. It's a it's a glorious thing. The, the pictures, the pictures alone are astonishing. But the narrative is fantastic. You guys did a great job, I think, of of contextualizing the band and the chapters make a lot of sense. A kind of historical overview, and then chapters devoted to particular arranger composers that kind of led the band at one point or another. That it just makes a lot of sense, and it really gives one a real sense of who these guys are over time. It's a great, great introduction to this group, I think. And it's it's a beautiful, just as a book, it's a beautiful book, but heavy, a heavy book. <laughs> Four pounds. <laughs> it, is, it is, yes, I think that's about right. I think that's about right. As far as a per pound price on a book, it's very reasonable. <laughs> oh, I yes, I, I, you know, I, I think it's beautiful. It uh, just... A, a really obviously a labor of love but unlike so many labors of love it's got bite it's not merely it's not a, it's not just a valentine it's it's a serious piece of journalism or history if you will so i, I thought that was uh, pretty impressive 
Well, thank you very much. kind of focusing more in our recordings on on the early scene but it sounds like you follow them throughout thoughts on kind of their general development over this long period i mean they've, they've been active again it's an ongoing musical organization that's been around for 50 years which is kind of amazing where are they now what are they up to i guess i'm just kind of curious about what, what the group's up to right now yeah well to start at the beginning i'll work up to the current version of the band Thad and Mel worked together for about 13 years before Thad moved to Europe to take over the uh, Danish radio big band. And during that first period, there were definitely a few other writers, but that was very heavily Thad's music and Thad's sound. He was by far the primary writer. Once Thad left, Mel took over leadership of the band, and that opened the door for Bob Brookmeyer to come back and become the musical director and one of the key composers. And they also started utilizing some other writers like Micah Benny, Jim McNeely started writing for the band. Bob Mincer has a handful of charts in the book. Mm, okay. And then when Mel Lewis passed away in 1990, you know, they brought in a new drummer and eventually became John Riley, who's been there since 1992. But the band then became known as the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. And for most of that time, I think since 1995, Jim McNeely, who is their pianist, is the composer in residence. Wow. So Jim has had two albums exclusively of his music that they've recorded. They've also recorded a Slide Hampton album and one, Bob Brookmeyer's last album was um, recorded by the band as well. And, and Bob had a period where he really was, was pretty far out there. Had he kind of, was that last album more, I don't want to say mainstream in any pejorative sense, but just more accessible than some of his more avant-garde stuff? Because my impression was he was a pretty daring arranger there for a while in terms of kind of third stream impulses and, and fairly challenging music. Yeah, when he came back and started writing for Mel's band, it was definitely somewhat avant-garde, but still kind of mainstream too. You could, you could start to hear him pushing the envelope. And... By the mid-1980s, he, I forget who said this, but they described it as Bob sort of wrote himself out of writing for Mel's band anymore. He was just really pushing the envelope beyond what would have worked for Mel's band or to be presented at the Village Vanguard every Monday night. So at that point, Bob moved to Europe. Yeah, when he came back and wrote that last project at the end, it was definitely more kind of back to the mainstream again. Okay. Interesting. I, I should listen to that. Yeah, my sense is that some of these guys, and I'm, I'm going to stop talking in a minute so Mike gets a few shots in here. <laughs> Poor guy. He's used to this. <laughs> it's just me monologuing most of these podcasts anyway. Eric, I find it useful to have reading available or taxes, tax forms you could be filling out. There's, there's, long, there's long spaces for other activity while Pat shares okay. his wisdom. 
I'll catch up on some Facebooking while we're doing this. There thing. you go. That's Half, what I'm talking about. There we go. About. That's good. All right, all right. Yeah, we turned off the cameras a long time ago, so I couldn't see what Mike's activities <laughs> were, but I think some of them it's probably best. I, I convinced I've, Pat I've it was a them. bandwidth issue, but yeah, I, I, I do catch up on a lot of reading over here at this time. So I think it was more a Mike wearing pants issue. Well, that too, but that goes without well, saying. Wait, we're supposed, to have pa- we're supposed to have pants for this? Oh, man. Yeah, I know. Well, it's okay. I, I'm making up for both of us. I've got three pair on. So I, I guess one thing that struck me, because a band I was a little bit familiar with, and there was kind of an album from my misspent youth that I knew pretty well. And I've told this story on the podcast many times that kind of my entry to jazz was through people of a generation, white people, people I knew uh, from my little Midwestern town who had uh, been brought up at the cool school. In other words, they'd gone to college when the cool movement happened. So I'd heard some of Jerry Mulligan's band. And apparently Lewis was in it. I can't remember if Thad was in it and Bobby Brookmeyer both played in it and did some writing for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, In a lot of ways, the Jerry Mulligan concert jazz band is kind of what gave Thad and Mel the impetus for creating their own band. So, yeah, Thad and Mel were definitely in it together in the early 60s. And the way that Mulligan ran things, he was very strict. He didn't give... Like he had guys like, you know, Thad and Mel and Phil Woods in this band. And he was very tight with the solo space. Like one of the quotes I read from Thad was, man, can you imagine you've got Phil Woods in this band and he might play eight bars of solo the whole night. It was really odd. And obviously, you know, Mulligan was this great soloist, but it was just more about the written music. And that frustrated Thad and Mel. And there were a handful of other things that they didn't like about Mulligan's leadership. And they they talked about this, and they're like, man, there's got to be a better way. We should start our own band someday. And that was really kind of the beginning of their pact to do that at some point. And then a few years later, you may or may not know, Thad was part of Count Basie's orchestra from about 1954 to 63. And he wrote a lot of arrangements for Count Basie. And early in 65... Basie commissioned Thad to write a whole album of music for the Count Basie Orchestra. And Thad turned in this music to Count Basie, and he sent it back. He said, this this doesn't work for my band. Um, You can have the music back, but this isn't going to work for us. And that set of charts is what became the first, I think, nine charts in the Thad and Mel book. Yeah, I I remember reading that story, and it's fascinating to me because heaven knows Basie would did an album of Beatles covers. There was a, a project he did. I think it was Oliver Nelson charts called like Afrique or something. I, I can't remember something African in it. So he would at times kind of go out of the comfort zone, but yeah, he is also kind of known for that very straight ahead four square kind of playing. And I, I apparently I, what I kept reading from that was that I can get away with any harmonies I want as long as the basic 
framework is still swinging and accessible. <laughs> that kind of his arranger's touch was he was willing to do really wild things in the harmonies and have dissonance and everything in there. But he kind of had a sense of how far to push it without alienating the audience. Uh, though we did alienate Count Basie, apparently. Yeah, um, and that's a great point. One of the things Jim McNeely told me about Thad's music was if you take one of his shout sections, for instance, and have the band like hold each note for a long period of time, you might kind of cringe a little bit and have it feel like you know there's a rock in your shoe or a little bit of sand in your eye, just a little bit of discomfort there. But when you play it in tempo and it's swinging, man, it just it totally works. Cool. All right, put down the tax forms. What, what, what do you got? Okay, I'm ready. So, uh, <laughs> first thing, Eric, uh, go Panthers! Yay! I spent time. From- in, uh, I spent. I taught for a year at Luther College, just up the road. So. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I I, I know that area. I've been through Cedar Falls. Uh, when when were you there? Uh, I was there in '99, 2000. Okay. There yeah, were a so, few few jazz guys I knew that were in residence there in the mid '90s, but you probably just missed them. I, that's yeah. I was not. I was not going to concerts. I was teaching my ass off, unfortunately. But uh, <laughs> beautiful part of the world. Anyway, I have been fortunate to to have the the damn book in front of me. And the first thing to say is, holy shit, this is uh, a terrific book. Um, it is. I'm just going to describe it for our listeners. It is like coffee table book size. The narrative is terrific. It's chock full of interviews, but it also is a kind of history text. But it reads fast in part because there are so goddamn many pictures in here, and they're amazing. The access you guys had to the photographic records you guys were able to to, to call to bring to, to bring to bear in this book are kind of amazing to me. Uh, was that difficult to, to find that stuff, or did the guys in the band have it, or you know how did you? And this is sort of a dumb question, I guess. How'd you guys go about getting all of the, the photographs for this? Because they're amazing. Oh, well, thanks. I, I really appreciate the comments about the book. That's definitely what we were going for. So, um, As far as the photos, we, we started out you know, asking people in the band what they had. And surprisingly, guys that have been in the band a long time, they're they didn't have a whole lot. Um, Dick Oates, who has been the lead alto player for about the last 40 years, he sent me home with this amazing tube of giant posters that he's collected, a lot of them from the 70s. So he trusted me with those, and I scanned some of those. For the most part, I'm lucky. I live about a half an hour from the Downbeat Magazine offices in Elmhurst, Illinois. And we contacted them initially I just wanted to go to them to go through the archives and look up articles about Thad and Mel. And they gave me permission to do that. It sounds like they don't just let anybody walk in there. So they were very kind in that regard. And I sat down with some magazines and then all of a sudden they come over with these two giant file folders. One's labeled Thad Jones, the other's labeled Mel Lewis. And they're like five inches thick, just with eight by 10 glossy photos. And they said, you know, scan away. If um, there's a photographer listed on here, we just ask that you contact them, get permission, license it, whatever you need to do. So most of the stuff came from Downbeat. And that was just like going to jazz fantasy camp for me to just sit and go through all of those photos and those folders. It was amazing. So, yeah, for for anyone who's interested interested in this book, it is, uh, man, it is a treasure trove of of information and 
the images. It, it's fantastic. Uh, uh, the book looks great. Um, it's heavy as hell. I've been carrying this around for days with the uh, <laughs> exams that I'm grading, and uh, it's far more enjoyable than the exams. But it, it outweighs <laughs> the damn box of exams, I feel like. Uh, so anyway, I've been getting a workout carrying this around with me. I was kind of struck um, reading uh, the early chapters in particular, focusing on um, Thad Jones and Mel Lewis. It seems to me you could almost have retitled the opening chapters, and I don't mean this in a negative way at all, the luckiest band in the world. Because they had so many strokes of good fortune right at the outset. Mel and Thad, of course, meeting in Jerry Mulligan's band, but then Thad writing this this set of arrangements for Basie, getting paid to write the set of arrangements for Basie, and then Basie rejecting them outright, but saying, you know, you use them. So there's the book. They've got the they've got their opening book, and then they come together as a kind of I know they didn't like this term at first, but they come together as kind of a rehearsal band in New York City, and they get a gig immediately at the Village Vanguard, and they kill it at the first gig, and they get a recording contract almost immediately. How uncanny is that for all of these things to kind of line up the way they yeah. did? I mean. Did that was that something that struck you as you were you know looking at the early history of the band? Yeah, what struck me was it was it was interesting how before this band had even played a gig that they were thinking in terms of getting a recording contract, and um, you know the band just from a couple of rehearsals caught the attention of Dan Morgan Stern who was the editor of Downbeat at the time and um, Alan Grant, who was a famous DJ in New York. And in fact, the All My Yesterdays recordings that we're going to um, talk about later that are from the opening night, the reason for those was they wanted to get a demo together to shop for a record deal. So that's why that first night was even recorded. The Vanguard took a big chance, like most clubs, Broadway, everything, they just, they were closed. They were dark on Mondays. And I think Alan Grant and Dan Morgan Stern, they knew Max Gordon, who's the owner of the village, or was the owner of the village Vanguard. And they went to him and said, man, we've got this great big band. We need a place for him to play. And, and Max took a chance and said, yeah, we'll be open on Monday and we'll see how it goes. And people were lined up around the block. The scene quickly turned into a who's who of the jazz world. They're listening to them. People told me you could look out there and see, you know, Cannonball Adderley or Stan Getz or Oliver Nelson checking out the band. Yeah, and you know, almost 52 years later, it's still sold out two sets a night on Mondays. Can you say a little bit about this this label that they got? They worked really hard to reject, and I, maybe can you talk about this a little bit? What what a rehearsal band is, and why Dad and Mel were so adamant to reject that label like why that was important to them to, to say that's not what we are and, and why some people initially thought that's what they were can you sort of just unpack that for our listeners a little bit yeah so the goal for Thad and Mel from the outset was they wanted this band to play they wanted this band to tour and they wanted it to um to record rehearsal bands back then and even now were just kind of pick up bands you know, let's say an arranger or two had some music that they wanted to hear played by a real band. I mean, especially back then, you didn't have, you know, music software programs that would play it back for you. So rehearsal bands, you know, were a chance for people to hear their music, for people who were a little more recreational, just to get together and play, or guys that mostly did the small group thing if they wanted to play in a big band. Can I interrupt Maybe. you there real quick for a yeah. second? I just want to make sure I understand this. So then 
an arranger. So how would rehearsal bands be compensated? Would just be some dudes who met in an apartment or, you know, in an attic or a loft somewhere and they would just play whatever arrangers brought and the arrangers would pay them out of pocket to hear their stuff or how did that work? Yeah, I'm not totally sure on that, but I think a lot of times it would be free gigs or the arrangers would pay the guys a few bucks mm. to play or guys would just get together for fun to do it, you know, things like that. So Thad and Mel really felt that that label of rehearsal band meant that people weren't taking this band seriously, like a band that's meant to be performing and recording. And they, till their dying day, honestly didn't understand how that happened. I've got some funny quotes in there. There's a sidebar of both Thad and Mel with quotes about this, and they're just like, I don't know how it happened. This isn't what it was ever meant to be, but man, we've been fighting this label since the beginning. All right. I have sort of two other questions, and I think they'll move us toward discussing the music. I mean, the first question is, uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, we're going to focus on the the Lewis uh, Jones uh, portion of of this band's era, but Thad left, and then Mel died in the 90s, so but the band kept on under a different name. Does the band today see itself as do they see themselves as like a as a as like a legacy band? When I think of a legacy band, I think of bands like there's a couple of Mingus legacy bands out there. There's of course a, an Ellington legacy band. The, the Count Basie Orchestra goes on. And sometimes these groups are cutting edge and sometimes they have a kind of mm, a reputation for, you know, they're almost museum pieces. Uh, sometimes these bands have that reputation. Does the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra see itself as keeping alive the Jones-Lewis book or doing more than that, like keeping it alive but commissioning new pieces in that tradition, extending that tradition? In other words, are they are they are they just a legacy band or are they more than a legacy band, I guess is what I want no, to ask. They're- they're definitely much more than a legacy band. Their mission, as they see it, and in practice, is they're constantly trying to innovate, commission new music, and keep the music moving forward. And um, what I find amazing about this band is that, um, and, and they are very much keeping alive the music of Thad Jones and Bob Brookmeyer and what Mel Lewis brought to light. So, I mean, they're amazing at playing it, but they're definitely a band that's moving forward that just also happens to have this amazing tradition and this amazing book of music. And what I find amazing about the band is that they can turn on a dime, they can play this swinging Thad Jones piece, one minute play this kind of out there Brookmire thing, and then play a Jim McNeely piece, and it's all, it's all done perfectly. Cool. And I guess that brings me to the, the question that I hope will move us towards starting to discuss, to discuss the music a little bit. Like Pat, I had heard of this band, but had never listened to anything by them until prepping for uh, this podcast. I may have heard Thad playing in other configurations, but I'm, I'm virtually certain I'd never heard Mel Lewis play in any other in any other band, unless he's on some gig that I'm unaware of. So this is like my first encounter with these guys. And we'll get into what we like about them in a second. But I'm just curious, could you kind of place for us what was so interesting or electrifying about this band at that time? Because there were still other big bands floating around. Ellington's still going strong in the 60s. And Well, Gerald Wilson is an example, right? I mean, he put out 10 albums on Pacific in the 60s, so... 
He's a West Coast band going, and apparently he poached some of the Vanguard <laughs> jazz band members for when he was over on the East Coast because they said some of the personnel changed from gig to gig because of that. So right. So. He was. I was trying to think of who was out there making. And Wilson, you know, made a lot, but only for a limited part right. of time. I mean, there's there's other there's other big bands out there. Sun Ra, for God's sakes. But you know, so what made the Thad Jones Mel Lewis configuration special, such that they did they just killed it in the downbeat critics and readers poll year after year. And this is a band that I, I'm not sure many of our listeners will have deep familiarity with. So what makes them special? Well, one of the biggest elements right off the bat was, was Thad's writing, which even though it was really steeped in the Count Basie tradition with a lot of blues influences, there was just something fresh and exciting about Thad's writing. Everybody that describes playing Thad's music or listening to it, there's just such an amazing sense of joy that comes from listening to it. So his music was a big part of it. Another part of it was the absolute all-star nature of the personnel in this band. He had Eddie Daniels, Jerry Dodgen, Snooky Young, Mel Lewis. He had Hank Jones at the beginning, Richard Davis on bass. He just... Bob Brookmeyer, literally an all-star lineup of people who mainly wanted to do this to play to play Thad's music. And then the other thing that made this band compelling was they really treated it as a small group a lot of times. And what I mean by that is the typical big band, and we talked about this with Mulligan's band, a lot of times you may hear an 8-bar solo or a 16-bar solo, or if you're really lucky, maybe a 32-bar solo. Thad's music, he really left things open and really focused on the small group concept. He would let soloists go on for choruses at a time, which really made it exciting. As I was thinking about this, I thought that you could drop the needle on about any Thad and Mel album, and a lot of times you wouldn't know if it's a big band or a quartet. Obviously, at its very essence, jazz is improvisation, so they really brought a lot more of that element into it. I would say that those were three of the things. And also just the sound of that band, the Village Vanguard is the quintessential jazz club. It's such an intimate space. And when you've got 125, 150 people in there, it's, there's just such an energy. And I can see how that really became a thing in New York at the time. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. Pat, should we start trying to talk about the music a little bit here, perhaps? Yeah, I, I think I wanted to look a little bit longer at one of the big questions about the big band and you mentioned the amazing personnel here and we really haven't i guess laid out because we all know but you know thad jones member of the great jones jazz family he's a cornet and trumpet player flugelhorn right he's one of the major soloists and he is a major writer and then mel lewis is a drummer you know i think mel lewis appears on some of the cuts of two of a mind the jerry mulligan paul desmond quartet album they did 
And I've always thought that the energy of the drumming on that, despite the fact it's very, very cool, I mean, there's only brushes, it's very minimalist, helps propel that record. And so I'm assuming the stuff I really like smell on that particular album. So he did some small group recording, and I think they released at least one, uh, I think I've got somewhere a quartet album they did when the band was active, just as a small group together. But uh, I, I think that the reason the rehearsal band tag kept coming up was, is you look at this thing, and it's kind of an economic chimera. You're trying to figure out, well, how could this work? It, it, it's it's a bunch of guys that are making really good money in the studios, and they're just really, as you said, a lot of big names. I mean, we didn't even mention Joe Farrell, who's one of my favorite 70s-era saxophone yeah. players. And, and he plays with Elvin Jones, Thad's brother, on a lot of Blue Note albums and makes his own stuff for CTI. And Pepper Adams as well, I forgot to mention him. Pepper Adams and Barry. <laughs> I mean, we could just go on and on. I mean, there's just an amazing collection of musicians here. And you ask yourself, well, how was that possible? And in a way, by itself, it couldn't have been, I, I think. In other words, if this was their only job, I don't see how Thad and Mel or anybody who wasn't just a billionaire could sustain a group like this because you couldn't afford these guys. I mean, you couldn't pay them the way Ellington was able to keep people on his payroll and his band. You couldn't sustain them, right? So there's this weird sense of because it's based in New York and because it's it's on a night, I mean, they're, they were almost, you know, zen and they're finding a way that the flow of the river already there they just they used it to enable this thing to come to being, this brilliant band. They picked a night that the guys weren't committed to, that Monday was a quiet night, that the club wasn't already booked on. I mean, it's it's if they, if they get money, they get money. They're making money where they never made money before. They find times, I think they were rehearsing like at midnight at first or something. It was, you know, they had to find times. Now, the only way it worked is that these guys love Thad's music enough and love being in a big band with all these other great musicians enough to commit the time. I mean, that's what's amazing. But at the same time, it's not like a group that's going out there and sustaining itself financially by itself. It couldn't. I mean, there's just no way, unless you were like a Russian oligarch, you could have a band like that because, you know, I just, these guys are worth too much. I mean, they can make too much in the studio. So it, I, I absolutely get, I mean, I, and I agree. I mean, this is a serious band. It's a recording band. It's a performing band. It's by no means a ragtag bunch of people got together to just play through a chart. But I understand people's confusion when they want to call it that because it's not a self-sustaining unit financially. I assume that Thad and Mel were able to kind of do okay through it somehow, but but even they may have been gigging on the side to kind of sustain it. Which, again, this is not like a, a negative thing about it or an accusation. I mean, Maria Schneider, whoever, if you get a great band together, that's you're not paying those guys their their salary that they live on. They are doing other stuff. That's just the only way to do it. But but I, I guess that's that's my insight into that or my feeling about that is that yeah if you look at this it, it does it's a special set of circumstances and kind of an emotional commitment by these guys who some of which just you know would say I can't go to Europe I'm just too busy and so they get substitutes in yeah and as long as those substitutes were really great you know everything worked but anyway I just I've got some sympathy for the confusion, I guess, even though the band does not sound like anything but just an amazing, in a sense, the reason it's so damn good is that it, it, it's made up of these people that you couldn't afford yeah. to, to like have salaried, if that makes sense. Is it, am I off base on this? or? No, they, they definitely, they, they weren't, nobody was making their living from this band for sure. I think when the band started out, they were making $17 on a Monday night for three sets. Okay. Which today is like, you know, 115 bucks, something like that. 
So, you know, it was, it was decent for an off night. They just did it for fun. And um, one of the quotes I ran across from Mel was that he never made a penny leading this band in 24 years. And I also heard stories um, from some guys that toured with the band in the 70s that said sometimes they would practically get stranded out on the road in the middle of a tour and Thad would have to pick up some writing work to, uh, you know, to get the band back home. So you'd throw it, <laughs> throw together an arrangement, uh, mimeograph or, you know, fax it back to somebody, get, get some money wired and they'd be okay. But, um, but amazingly on some of these long European tours, they, they did get most of the regulars kind of one of the rules that Thad and Mel had was if you wanted to be in the band, you had to do the tours. Okay. John Mosca, who's been lead trombonist, he's been in the band 42 years now. He's, you know, when Thad and Mo would announce a tour, they'd get everybody together in the break room and said, all right, who's not going on this tour? And whoever raised their hand, they, they knew they weren't going to be in the band much longer. And they weren't trying to be jerks about it. It's just they were doing their best to um, keep the unit cohesive. And so most of the turnover you see in personnel which we cover all the personnel in the back of the book. Most of those changes were brought about when somebody wasn't able to or didn't want to go on a tour. Yeah, it's just an amazing lifestyle that they had to walk to, to keep that band together. And, and of course, at 50 years, as they said, very, very few ensembles. They, they and the Rolling Stones in a couple <laughs> of years, right, or have been around. Another angle of... Um, kind of how they sustain tours and um, how they made it work economically. Um, there's this great book. It's a Pepper Adams chronology by a guy named Gary Carner, who's studied the heck out of Pepper Adams. You can see it shows like all the gigs Pepper did. And there were some dates that I knew he was on tour with that and Mel in Europe, but on off days or in the afternoon, they would be doing these other gigs and recording sessions with other groups. So they would make it work that way sometimes as well. And, you know, we, we see that people touring with bands in earlier decades, the same deal, you know, some of these recordings out of Paris or whatever, where visiting musicians like sitting with Django Reinhardt or whoever would come in to the studio, put down a set while they were in the country and, and just kind of move on. So it makes sense. Yeah, it's a, an amazing effort given, you know, after the 40s is, is kind of any jazz fans aware the economic viability of big bands really uh, – became questionable for almost everyone except for a couple of really big names. And even that was kind of a day-to-day struggle. Well, as, as Mike said, we should probably move on. There's recently been a recording on Resonance Records of the very first and then a, a second gig that was just a few weeks afterwards, a recording of, of the Vanguard band. And apparently some of these recordings have been circulating as boots, but this was the first official release and cleaned up. And I asked us to look at all our yesterdays. Is that correct? All my yesterdays? All someone's yesterdays? Oh, my. Disc one. All my. Thank you. Okay. Oh, my. Oh, my. So I, I guess 
I don't know who would like to start, whether Eric, you'd like to jump in, or Mike, but just to kind of talk about the music here, which is, I, as you said, it was kind of a tape made at their request so they could shop it to get a to get a label interested. Just thoughts on this music? Yeah, Mike, do you want to jump in? Uh, no, I'd actually rather listen to you guys talk about it, or especially you, Eric, since you've kind of studied it at a note-for-note note level. Hold I on. mean, I, I think it's terrific. The only issue I have, and it's not even an issue, it just gets irritating sometimes. I don't. Maybe it's not even irritating. It's just uh, all the byplay. I just want to hear these guys play, and there's a lot of chatter, and there's a lot of encouraging. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being a bastard. <laughs> I just want to hear them play, and sometimes they're they're fucking around. Sometimes I guess that's kind of neat in a way. You get the spontaneity, you know, uh, of the event. I think I like the other recordings a little bit more. They seemed a little more business like. This seemed like they're just kind of. It's not that they're fucking around. They're not. It it's it seems a little playful maybe, and I just wanted I, to hear them go. I don't know. I, I think most of what you're hearing is is Thad, and. You know, keep in mind this was the first night, so Thad's yeah, kind exactly. Of, he's, yeah. he's kind of a little bit. He's calling signals, but Thad was famous for, um, you know, shouting out encouragement, you know, yelling out trombones, background here, trumpets come in here, things like that. And when I first started on this book, I watched some videos of Thad, and I, and I thought he was just kind of being a corny showman. But you talk to all these guys that were in the band, and they all say that that's what really brought a lot out of them was Thad being up there doing that kind of stuff. So I, I can definitely see um, where you're getting your impression and how that might be. Like I, I get annoyed listening to Keith Jarrett records and all the, the groaning <laughs> stuff. I just can't stand it. So I, I see where you're coming from, but. Uh, and I don't, I don't mean to sound it's, it's not, it's not a criticism. It's just, um, and I guess I, I, I forgot for a while but this was recorded literally on the first night that the band played live so i should temper my it, it's it's mild it's the mildest of irritations but yeah i forgot I, you know you forget we're actually <laughs> hearing the band the first night they play live so yeah there's going to be talking you know there's going to be stuff so and you know the, literally in that club the front row of people are about two and a half feet away from the saxophone section. So part of what you hear might be, you know, the crowd too getting into it. So do they, do they mic that place? Do they need to mic that place or do, you, do they play without, I mean, I know they mic for the performance, but do they have to amplify them? The, 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 do they have to amplify the band when they play you in know, that room? Currently they have, uh, I think one solo mic for each section, maybe two for the saxes. Um, the piano is mic'd, but honestly, I kind of like it better. I don't know if they even need it, but yeah, they do mic solos just a little bit in that club. Interesting, because I, I do know, I mean, I've never been there, but I, I've heard how intimate a space it is and how small it is. In this case, the band comprises, what, one-fifth of the room practically, so. Yeah, it's, that's, that's a pretty good estimate, yeah. And presumably the bass. You're going to have to amplify that just because oh. it's such a quiet instrument. But, yeah, it's a frustration with acoustic music. I sometimes come up and I see all these microphones and I'm like, it's a small room. Can we just hear them rather than um, the speakers? So you mentioned that Thad would dictate or conduct backings. and There's a certain amount of kind of interaction, a spur of the moment with the band. It wasn't just we're running down this chart the same way as we did last time. Is that right, that he would sometimes kind of direct sections to kind of make up a backing riff? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, so Thad, in addition to conducting, he would have his trump cornet or flutal horn, and you know he would be one of the key soloists. And let's say a tenor saxophonist was playing ten choruses of a blues, Thad would pick up pick up his horn, kind of point to the trumpet section, nod at them, start playing a little riff that they would pick up on, and then he would you know point down to the trombones or the saxes, he'd come up with another riff. So yeah, he was a lot of times was arranging right on the spot as well. And another thing that accounts for some of the vocalizations is they didn't say, all right, Joe Farrell, you've got four choruses on this. Um, one night the chorus or the solo might be 12 choruses. The next night it might be eight. So Thad was you know, directing in that aspect as well. Okay, just in terms of bringing the band in, fading them out, determining just, I guess, maybe by how bored he was or excited, how long a given soloist would play and, and doing it spur of the moment, which I think is one danger. Some of the big band I've, I've liked the least that I've heard over the years, and I haven't heard that much, is I'll hear like a college band or a really professional studio band that is so polished and tight and slick it's like it's it's 15 robots perfectly executing every note and like the decrescendos and crescendos and everything are just perfectly calibrated and it just seems airless and I don't I can't I just don't get much out of it even though it's faultless and I guess one thing they're always because these guys are all people that get paid to kind of play it right the very first time music stuck on the stand in front of them you know they're playing for a commercial gig or whatever you know literally a gig for a commercial and they've got to get the jingle right the first time. So they they're, can execute at that level, but at the same time, it sounds like Thad tried to keep the band loose enough that it didn't become too mechanically perfect or too polished, I guess. Because that's, at least for me as a listener, that's when I one way I'll start to learn. I, obviously, I'll lose interest if they're just terrible or disorganized, you know, but if it's too tight, if it's too wound up and perfected, I tend to lose interest. So at least, or obviously, they're not, this is the first gig, so it's a little bit rough and ready. But even in the other recordings, is, is it the sense that that breathing stays there? I'm, is that true of the later stuff? I've not really heard the, the later decades of this band. Did they keep fighting that that tendency that you know our really great musicians sometimes have of being too good? What, what was your thought on that? I, I feel like the band executes pretty flawlessly, but nothing ever feels robotic or mechanical to me in any iteration of this band. Awesome. What what I kind of like. Maybe the number I like the best on this first one is um, Mourn and Reverend, one of the shorter pieces, in part because it has this kind of – who's playing the cowbell on that? Is that is that Thad? <laughs> it's got this crazy cowbell sort of Latin thing to start, and then it has – well, it sounds like uh, New York Traffic. The way the yeah. horns are, are playing against one another, you know, in that. And what's kind of amazing to me is how intricate uh, all of that is. I mean, you know, you hear that Thad wrote for Count Basie and you expect lockstep rhythm section, swing and lots of space for blowing. But that's kind of through composed in some ways. 
and and rather intricate and and tricky it seems to me and and i like that quite a bit but to think that that's you know the first performance they're doing that live and it comes off as flawlessly as it does that tells you a lot about this particular band i think that's interesting you mentioned the traffic um john mosco when he introduces this piece today and this is a good time to mention literally all of the tracks on this album are still in the book and still performed by the band today so like right off the bat you know that was bringing in stuff that was timeless but um the inspiration for this song thad used to say that uh, morning reverend was something you would say to somebody if you saw a friend out on the street and they were looking particularly dapper well-dressed that was a greeting so um yeah out on the street you know maybe the the traffic in new york those sounds were, were part of that too i think that's pretty neat do you have a particular track on this uh it's, we know it's a two disc set but on this opening night was is there something there for you you just say that's the essence of this band probably for you it's a little bit like picking among your favorite children but do you have one that's a little more favorite than another you know, um, I liked Little Pixie. I have a soft spot for that. Um, I've played that in college, and I know that that went really well. The bummer about the version on this recording is something happened to the head going out. The presentation of the melody, they lost that. So on this, there's a little, there's a fade out, and they fade back in, and they just put the, the melody from the beginning back on it. But, um, you know, Backbone is another great one. Yeah, no, no particular favorites though. They're all, they're all pretty great. Is there any particular performance that you know any of the players in particular shine for you uh, on this particular outing? One thing that really sticks with me, and this is maybe a little more sentimental than musical, but uh, first track, Backbone, that starts with Jerry Dodgin playing an unaccompanied solo, and then the band comes ripping in. And when I was there for the 50th anniversary, like on the day, February 7th, 2016, Jerry Dodgin was there playing with the band. And the last thing he did was they played that track with Jerry starting out on that solo again. So that was just, that was the perfect bookend for me. And mm. um, when, I, when I hear that on, on here, I really smile because Jerry's this great guy, great player legend in jazz sweetest guy you'll ever meet and um <laughs> he also had another great story um, thad always made jerry play unaccompanied at the front of this and they came back out for the second set one night at the vanguard and they noticed cannonball adderley's in the front row like two feet from the saxophone section <laughs> and uh you know they didn't they hadn't set the tunes yet for the set and thad's like man what what should we play this set and he's like i know we'll start with backbone <laughs> so he throws, <laughs> throws jerry dodging out there to play unaccompanied two feet from cannonball adderley <laughs> no pressure no not at all not, no. not at all yeah. and he comes in pretty hot and raw on, on that solo and the, that first you know the all my yesterday's disc He's a, it's, it's, it's pretty raw. It's pretty direct. You know, it's not avant-garde exactly, but it's, he, he's not really trying to tone things, tamp things down there. It's a memorable entrance. Yeah. Yeah. He gets right to it. I was going to say, um, I was surprised and looking at the personnel, uh, pleasantly surprised, uh, I guess maybe not even surprised that Dick Davis is the bass player for this band. We've, we, we've had little orgasmic chat sessions about dick davis before how important was he to this particular band sound especially early because he's he's with them for the first three or four years right 
I think the first six years, pretty much. Okay. Yeah. So he, um, Richard Davis has this really kind of more avant-garde sound. If you just listen to him walk a blues bass line. It sounds very angular and a little more modern than most guys did back then. So he gave it that element. He and Mel Lewis and Roland Hanna, oh, Hank Jones started out, but he wasn't there for too long. Pretty quickly, it was Roland Hanna. And they were a unit for probably a good five years, I want to say. And those three guys, they could just, they could take things anywhere, really straight ahead, really out there, sparse guys jumping in and out. And yeah, Richard Davis was, was a very important part of that. And Thad, I'm sorry, uh, Mel and Richard, they knew each other from playing a lot of jingles and studio sessions before they started the band. And a, a really fun story that Richard Davis told me, they were in the studio for one of the first albums and they, they did like three takes of a particular song and um, all three of them came out exactly to the second the same length of time so mel and richard were just so locked in they were just they're they were like a metronome but not not in a bad way in a very musical way cool yeah if you're going to ask me who was likely to be the bass player for this group richard davis you know it just it, it's amazing i mean he sounds great but especially the recordings i i kind of know him from all the stuff he did with andrew hill for instance or whatever it's just yeah kind of jaw-dropping that he is the player because he is a fairly can be challenging can be out i mean he's amazing i love his playing but it, he is a fairly adventuresome guy in his own work and some of the small work group work he did so yeah here he's in a very different role you think it'd be somewhat confining for him but yet he finds a way to to really get into it and obviously enjoyed it i mean he's there five years this is kind of amazing i wouldn't guess that now is, is little pixie is that based on rhythm changes is that yeah, I got rhythm in the key of A flat. Most of the times you'll hear it in B flat, but Thad had a penchant. He had a couple charts that he wrote in A flat for rhythm changes. Wow. Okay. Because I, I, sometimes if you're trying to play the game, and this is definitely true of Toshikaki Yoshi, and I assume some other big band writers, well, they'll, they'll do a tune. It's a new tune. It, I think the technical term is contrafact, but it's based on change. And it, correct me, you, you actually know this stuff. I don't. It's based on changes that are familiar to the players. And the nice thing about that is then these professional level guys all know those changes backwards and forwards. And so when it's time to solo, harmonically, they're on very familiar ground. It's, it's not the chart is new, but the, the chord changes are familiar. I mean, obviously, a lot of these are blues. And I was trying it like three and one. At one point, I was kind of hearing a standard at the end of that arrangement. But then I lost it. So I don't know if that particular one, which is on one of, is that off the studio album or the? That's from the first studio album. And yeah. it's, it's and... not based on a standard, but there is a section where the progression is going through what's called the cycle of fourths, which is a pretty, a pretty familiar sounding thing. So that's, okay. that's probably what you're picking up on there. But yeah, that's, that's um, on the first album. Yeah, only uh, every now and then you get glimpses. But 
So it, it kind of makes sense when you're doing these kind of works to have at least some tunes that aren't both new harmonically and melodically, you know, and, and that that gives the guys a chance to just kind of burn. And I, and I did notice, and I think that's one of the questions I've always got about big bands, is that that balance between writing and soloing, because it's a weird thing. It's like, well, if I want to hear one guy solo a lot, I know where to go. It's his quartet or quintet, typically. At the same time, you don't want to just hear charts because then it doesn't seem like jazz anymore. As you said, it's, it, we tend to think of jazz as having improvisation. And one of the things that happened here was Jerry Mulligan was kind of too tight. And that makes perfect sense to me. When I think about his quartet writing or whatever, he tended to be kind of a, a global thinker, right? He's, he's, he's wanted to create an effect. He's not so worried about self-expression <laughs> necessarily. He and Coltrane never did a duet album. He duetted it with everybody else. But he's he, almost an earlier generation musical values wise so that's a tough balance to keep right to, to keep the band providing room for people to express themselves without as you said is it a good thing or a bad thing that if you drop a needle you're not sure is it a quartet or is it a big band i mean to because then i feel like well are we losing the focus why why do we have the 15 people in the room it's just tough aesthetically for me to know and i think that's one thing that we struggle with listening a lot of jazz fans do is well what do i make of this is it is it about the power is it about the harmonies they can produce and, and the intricate counterpoint you can get that you can't get with like a quintet? What What's the balance we're looking for here in terms of self-expression, the different musicians, everybody getting a chance and, you know, making the writing or the band identity kind of the center of what, what, what it's about? You know, I, I honestly think there's a great balance of all of those. Obviously, I've listened to this band a lot and I can honestly tell you there's never been a time that i'm like ah there's too much soloing going on or or not enough yeah i feel like it it all really works out in the end for sure and that's you know that's an amazing accomplishment i I actually did hear a rehearsal band recently at uh the jazz kitchen in indy and very good charts excellent musicians but it's like now we're going to play a blues and the third trumpet player is going to get a solo and i'm like drinks are really expensive i'm going home kind of thing because it you, know, you get to get the sense that we've got to kind of at some level placate everybody on the stand and give them some chance and again i it's not like they were bad musicians so there's that balance you know how do you keep the musicians happy but keep the statement going and it's, it's awesome they were able to kind of walk that knife's edge yeah and one of the things i mean one of the reasons you had pepper adams in that band for 11 years or eddie daniels or joe farrell is that they did get a lot of solo space and they, they loved playing the arrangements as well. But I think if they had gotten, you know, here's your eight bar solo for tonight, I don't think those guys would have stuck around for as long. Yeah. So to keep musicians of that caliber, you have to kind of give them more breathing room. You can't yeah. be too much of a martinet. That makes sense. And, and small group jazz was, you know, the very heart of what Thad and Mel themselves were. I mean, that's, that's where their passion was as players. My sense sometimes is that Thad is lesser known as a trumpet player than he should be, just as a as a player. One of the things that surprised me was the number of people that referred to Thad as a genius improviser. And I'm with you. I knew him primarily as a writer and a band leader. And the number of people that spoke with of his playing with great reverence was really enlightening. Yeah, well, you know, he makes it on 5x5 five by, five by Monk. That's... <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, a sticky situation there. Some of those tunes were just murder. You know, I've heard him, and he's, I think, also maybe played solos on the Monk Big Band projects. 
he's I feel like he is an ear catcher. I think he's somebody that is he's technically impressive, but just somebody who when he's playing, I'm interested. You know, he's got really interesting ideas as an improviser, something that catches my ears. So, yeah, in a sense, I think maybe becoming a big band leader kind of overshadowed to some degree, even though he soloed a lot, his identity as a just a horn player that he didn't have the Thad Jones combo going decade after decade. And, you know, where he was soloing 30 minutes of every 50 minute set kind of thing. I I don't know. A, A few people directly told me that, yeah, Thad's writing definitely overshadowed his genius as a player. Mm. I ran over you, Mike. Did you have something to? I was going to take that point about arranging and 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 move it move the discussion on to what I take is the second album of this group that we were going to talk about, uh, presenting Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, and the Jazz Orchestra. And I guess I wanted to ask. By this point, Brookmeyer's in the band. I guess he's got lead trombone duties, but he's also he arranges a couple. He's got his first composition in the book here, ABC Blues, and and he arranges Willow Weep for me. And I'm wondering. Your book talks about how some of the players kind of flipped out on some of Brookmeyer's arrangements because they were they were increasingly out and difficult and challenging. Was there friction early on with Brookmeyer's arranging, or did he sort of seamlessly fit into at least initially what what this band was doing and what it was about? Because I think the opening of Willow Weep for me on this particular album is is kind of fascinating and interesting. Um, but it's not scary, nor is ABC, <laughs> nor is ABC Blues. So I wondered, at what point did Brookmeyer start to become kind of scary? Not, not at this point, I guess. Yeah, not at, at this point. Brookmeyer's music was just considered a really great foil for Thad's writing. So everybody was totally into it. The point at which some resistance crept up was when Mel took over the band, and you had kind of a younger, younger generation of guys. Pepper Adams had moved on. Eddie Daniels wasn't there anymore. New trumpet players. So they were kind of used to things being a little bit looser with that. When Brookmeyer came back, he was also the musical director. So he was rehearsing the band. So he was suddenly keeping the band to higher standards on Thad's music. And he was bringing in this cutting edge stuff that wasn't necessarily swinging it was dissonant, challenging, it just not what a lot of guys were into. So that the uh, friction you're talking about was more like 1979 to 1980, and that's what resulted in um, several personnel changes at that point. Interesting. So, so at this point, he just kind of seamlessly fits in as a kind of counterpoint to what Thad's doing, and there, he, he himself hasn't kind of started to stretch in ways that would become a challenge for some of the band members like a decade on. That's kind of interesting. I didn't, I, I mean, I didn't, I'm not, I'm somewhat familiar with Brookmeyer's music, but I'm not, I don't know his chronology, the point at which he, he starts to change as a player and change as a, as a writer and arranger to the degree that, that for this group, it began to present some, some difficulties later on, but obviously not at this point, with this particular, at this particular point in his development. Correct. Yeah, he's really, uh, if you listen to some of his earlier stuff or his work with Mulligan, some of his small group stuff, he, he's kind of that generation of white musicians who were interested in the Basie tradition and kind of pre-bebop jazz and carrying that through into the cool era. I, you know, you wouldn't listen to some of his early stuff and think, this is a guy that's going to write, I don't know, 12-tone serial or whatever it was he got up to in the later years. He really changed a lot, so... Yeah, he's very kind of mainstream, almost a pre-bop roots kind of guy early, and then obviously just changed and changed. So 
these two albums that we were looking at that were officially released on Solid State, and I guess they did several records with Solid State before kind of moving on to various labels. One thing that struck me about them is that as compared to a Gerald Wilson at this time, though apparently later, like in the 70s, they do some pop tunes, here there are no concessions to kind of what's going on in the 60s, right? There are no Beatles covers or... Or really, you know, uh, Wilson also does covers of kind of popular jazz musicians. He'll do some Miles Davis stuff or whatever, but he'll do, I can't remember his theme from Rosemary's Baby or some other, just, you know, he'll do some stuff that's kind of in the air on the radio waves. These guys didn't seem interested in that, at least in this era at all, though I guess Solid State asked them to do at least a few standards so it wasn't just all unknown originals. Is, is that right? The quote I saw from Mel was that Solid State wanted at least one standard per album, which that's okay. Willow Weep for Me would fit in or Willow Tree or Lover Man on the second album. But um, they didn't say anything about how it should be handled. So they did give them quite a bit of le- uh, quite a bit of leeway. And the band was really happy with the creative freedom they had on the Solid State label. And I think they sound pretty good. I mean, it's kind of a tough job to record a big band well, but I felt like these are pretty clear recordings. Well, uh, can you you talk about this in the book, and maybe you could talk a little bit about it um, here, Eric. The legendary producer Phil Ramone was the engineer for these sessions and, and apparently had a lot to do with capturing this band sound or trying to replicate at least in studio what they were capable of at the vanguard is that is that uh, is that fair to say yeah um jerry dodgin was telling me that phil ramon he'd be sitting in the control room but he'd spend a lot of time in the room with the band and he would go out there listen to them and say okay play it now that i'm in the control room and he was really trying to replicate the room sound in the studio and took a lot of time to do that and you know, these, these studio albums don't sound exactly like the band at the Vanguard, but I do think they sound a little more vital or a little more true to the big band sound than some of the albums of this era do. It sounds a little less studio-like to me than some other albums around this time. Yeah, they certainly aren't slathering on reverb. It's not direct feed bass. It's not obviously manipulated and kind of artificial sounding at all, I, I think. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe Mike's got something up, up his sleeve. You never know. That's why we keep the cameras I, I, turned off. I'm, I don't want to see you that. I, no, no, no. I, I'm just, I do agree. You know, I was trying to imagine, as I was listening to presenting, I was in my head trying to compare it to Ellington recording, because that's the big band I'm most familiar with, and, and the studio situation there. And, and you know, I couldn't, in my head, decide that this sounded better or different. I liked the sound of this, this particular studio recording. And then when I read the book and read what Phil Ramone had to do to kind of get that sound, I, w- I kind of thought, ah, wow, well, that makes sense. And that is a striking thing on, on these songs in particular. It does sound really good. But it also, I think, manages to capture some sense of the band's spontaneity and energy. Th- these don't feel uh, polished or sanded to within an inch of their lives. It, they, the songs have some room to breathe. I think in particular something like Three and One, which is really spirited and and energetic in a way that doesn't feel like some complete like it's just been rehearsed to death the tune kind of breathes and i don't know if that's phil ramon or this band but uh i liked that about this particular recording and the book gave me a, a window onto understanding a little bit about how that came about it seems yeah 
Yeah, Balanced Scales was kind of, for me, the outlier, and that it seemed the artiest of, of the pieces. I don't think that was a Thad Jones chart. Is that, nope. no. is that another member of the band? Yeah, Tom McIntosh, who was um, a member of the trombone section, wrote and arranged that one. And yeah, that outlier is probably the best way to describe that compared to the other charts. I think everything else on there is Thad or Brookmeyer. But, um, you know, it, it's a great piece in and of itself. I'm, I'm honestly not sure if that one is still in the books or not. I've, I've never heard that one played by the band. That, that may have gone by the wayside a little bit. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think the full title is Balance Scales Equal Justice or something, which is also the kind of the closest we get to any kind of politicized statement. I, I noticed that in the coverage of the group, they mentioned that this is a age-integrated and racially integrated band. I mean, obviously the co-leaders, one guy's African-American, one guy's white, that in a sense, in their practice, they kind of, because you think, you know, 66, this is a uh, turbulent time, uh, socially speaking. I don't know that that's really reflected, and the, the band's not trying to be political, as far as I can tell, but they kind of, in a sense, demonstrated by what they were doing, that they were into, you know, they were literally integrated, and the music was more important than the kind of the conflict going on around them. I, I was struck when I was reading the book that, you know, I read past the material that, you know, really covers what we're talking about today so when you get to the chapters on the 70s you see a lot of the players have naturals you know really cool froze and then they're wearing sort of african print shirts and that includes thad and mel to me that was the most political thing i saw here was the sense of this fashion statement that we're all kind of in this together but it was never sort of overtly politicized and and that seems to have been the case with the band is that is that fair to say eric yeah, there's never been any sort of politicization that I've that I'm aware of. I don't even think the um, that it was an integrated band, but I don't think that was ever really the focus. Eddie Daniels was telling me. Well, I was asking him about the importance of this, and he's like, "Man, honestly, we were never thinking in those terms. We were just like, holy crap, look at these good players. There's Brookmeyer, there's Thad, there's Mel. We weren't like this guy's white, this guy's black. So yeah, I don't think there was ever a political agenda, but it was certainly a very positive message that, you know, some of the people who joined the band later talked about, you know, they, at the time, they certainly noticed that and felt that that was an important thing. But they never did an album of Archie Shep covers, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of striking looking at some of these pictures because the text is pretty clear that, you know, th- that wasn't a central focus for this band. And at least, say, for Ellington, really from the mid-50s on, it becomes something that he starts gently introducing as a, as, as a kind of issue or a topic for him. You know, he, he writes about civil rights issues, and he's interested in these issues. And I just, when you look at the pictures of the band, I mean, there's this great picture I'm looking at from 1974, and there's Thad in this sort of African print shirt, and you've got, I think it's Jerry Dodgian out in front. No, it's, it can't be. I think it's Pepper Adams on Barry. And then you've got Guys with all sorts of other funky prints, white guys and black guys. If there's a message, it's that's it. There it is. Just here we are. And not there, there's nothing overt about this. It's just kind of subtle, if that. And, you know, uh, as I said, for my sake and for Mike's, what we did was kind of I thought, well, let's and I also just defined you know, the way I got the first two records was a European label issued the, uh, these two albums and a vocal album, which I've not even gotten a chance to listen to, where the band was backing a vocalist on a two-disc set. And I assume I have not checked one problem with especially, you know, any jazz recording, but often especially big band recordings is it can be just hard to find them in print. In solid state, 
ended up getting absorbed and reabsorbed. You know, I think it's ultimately all belongs to EMI now, but at some point Blue Note took them over. And I think Blue Note's identity has been so closely tied up with small groups that people didn't necessarily pay attention as closely to this part of the legacy as they might have in terms of reissues. But we just kind of picked, or I kind of picked, the very first recordings. And I guess my question for you would be, as to somebody new to this band who could benefit from your wisdom, this may be too much of a, a tightly focused time. In, their, in other words, I would have trouble distinguishing development or different attitudes in these three records. The repertoire is largely different, so clearly the book grew very quickly. In other words, they aren't just re- replicating that first gig set of songs in either the live album or the studio one. There, there, there's some overlap, but not that much really. Where would you suggest a neophyte to, I guess, let's just begin with the Thad Jones Mel Lewis band began. What, what are a couple recordings they should listen to to kind of get to know this phase of the band? Obviously, keeping in mind that the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra continues many decades after both Lewis and, and Jones are gone. Any favorites that, that you'd point us to? Well, the one that really got me hooked on this band, and I didn't even know what it was called. I just got it from one of my college professors, was the first studio album, Presenting Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, and the Jazz Orchestra. Unfortunately, that one is out of print. If someone wants to check it out, lots of copies of the LP available on eBay. Probably somebody you know has it. <laughs> wink, wink. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, but that's the one that got me hooked, especially three and one. That chart, that just, that one has it all. It's got just this powerful writing from Thad, the shout choruses. The saxophone solely is amazing. You've got this a lot of small group. Well, in fact, the presentation of the melody is a small group of uh, Pepper Adams, Richard Davis, and Thad. They have the melody. And there are these long extended solos. So, yeah, th- that whole album is what got me hooked. Um, as far as what's available, I would say Live at the Village Vanguard is a great one. Or Central Park North, which is from just a few years later, is an excellent place to start as well. And that one is in print? Last time I checked, Central Park North is still available pretty readily on iTunes. Okay, cool. And then for for listeners who want to kind of follow the progress of the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra today, right? It looks like they've been recording on the Planet Arts label since about 2000. Is there a particular recording out of that, I guess it's six or seven recordings, that you think kind of captures where the band's at now on what kinds of things they're doing? Because on most of these albums, you'll see that there, there are plenty of different arrangers here that they're that they're using at this point. And the book obviously is pretty expanded. But is there, is there a particular one out of that set of five or six or seven albums that you think that's a good place for someone to check in on them now? Well, um, I'll maybe give you more than one just from some different angles. I would say Up From the Skies, which is a whole album of McNeely compositions, the latest one, there have been two. That's a great one. And, And all of these Planet Art ones are available on iTunes. So Up From the Skies is excellent. The 
last Bob Brookmeyer album, which is called Over Time. That's an important one just because it's, you know, the last music that Bob Brookmeyer wrote. And then if you want to hear this band performing some of the classic Thad arrangements, as well as some Brookmeyer and McNeely, there's a Monday Night Live at the Village Vanguard from 2008. And that was actually a Grammy Award winner in 2009. Awesome. Okay, well, that's helpful, because, again, we are both new to this. Yeah, I think we both know Jim McNeely, but and, and obviously some of the players, but this band in its early or in its later iterations is just a new thing for both of us. And I guess I was really struck as I, I looked back. I, I assume it sounds like Maynard stuff, some of it's still in print, as we, we talk about these a couple of attempts to keep to kind of follow up on what Lewis and Jones were doing. And sustained this big band tradition. You know, we mentioned uh, Jerry Mulligan's concert band and Gerald Wilson's band of the 60s. And really the way I got hold of Gerald Wilson's albums was Mosaic did a set, which I think is probably out of print now, and just stuck their you know, 10 of their records on five discs. But much of that was just hard to track down. And as you say, a lot of these albums are available on LP. They're out there used. And I think, again, I, I think that this this two or three albums on two disc set that I got is out there. It's just, again, is it in print? What does that mean? What it means is the copyright has lapsed in Europe and someone has issued God knows where they got it from, but, but you know, there, it's floating around anyway. It, it's hard to find this stuff. And for, to, uh, for Toshika Akiyoshi, for instance, her stuff is just, you can't get it. It's not streaming. It's, it's not in print for a while there. Japan had some of her stuff on CD, but that seems to have gone the way of the dinosaur. So, these bands, it's I feel like as opposed to, you know, Miles Davis is an obvious example, but even, you know, right now all of Tina Brooks' four albums on Blue Note, this tenor player who his active recording career was only a few years long, are readily available. There's a sense that small group jazz tends to get more attention from collectors overall than big band jazz. I, I guess just, you know, it's just a question I don't have an answer for, but it's something I've been thinking about as we did it. Why is it that Mike and I never heard this group, who's arguably one of the most important big bands of the late 60s, early 70s and forward, whereas we've heard often some fairly obscure small group musicians? And I, I don't have an answer for it. It just seems like their the debut album's out of print. It, 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 this just seems bizarre in a way. It really is. Um, in putting together the book and licensing album covers and such, Universal Music group has the rights to all of these solid state albums and looking through these right now i think all of them except the first one are available on itunes and i i don't know why you wouldn't have that first one on there particularly because there are three or four arrangements that college bands are playing all the time still yeah i it's a mystery yeah you could think you could sell it to that audience of nothing else and I, I don't have an answer for it but in a sense, I, more than anything, you tend to think of these groups as labors of love, right? That the people are willing to devote time and energy and sweat to keeping these ensembles around when economically they're never going to be, as you said, Mel Lewis never made a time on the band. Kind of shocking to think about all the time he spent with it. And hopefully he found a lot of joy in it. So I kind of picked out a couple of other people that were trying to... <laughs> think in these terms from the 70s that I was familiar with as, as a kid, just to kind of orient myself and, and to think about these different approaches they took. One is, is very uh, vividly different, and that's Maynard Ferguson. So I asked <laughs> us to listen to M.F. Horn, and apparently this was all recorded in England, and it was a shock to the members there when they found out what M.F. meant. <laughs> Thank you. 
for God's sakes. Oh, okay. There's a joke there. It's not just Maynard's initials. This is a different kind of approach to trying to have a big band work in the 70s, right? He he plays a couple popular tunes. I've got to admit, I never heard the song Eli's Coming. It just wasn't one. You have. Was... You have. We did it on a podcast. Do you know? No, no, no. I mean, as a kid. Oh, okay. I, of course. Okay. <laughs> yes, I've listened to Laura Nero now. Mike. But when I was 16 and got this album, I had no idea. Okay. It was just not one that had been played on oldie stations where I was. And MacArthur Park, once you've heard it, you're scarred for life, so you never forget it. But you know, he does that. <laughs> I just imagine this meeting with his producer at one point that says, Maynard, come over here. And, you know, I've got this idea. Maynard, what do you think about ending the song on a high note? <laughs> just just try it. Try it, dude. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this album should be called this album should be called MFFF Horn because that's well, all he plays. The Jesus. thing I'll say, and this is the one that I didn't get rid of as a kid. I think I had a couple others that maybe didn't make all the You didn't moves keep Conquistador? Yeah. Um. I actually, listening to this, I like the writing. It's just, there's just so much Maynard. But I mean, the, the writing itself, I mean, even Kenny Wheeler chips in a tune here, and the band is pretty tight. I guess his thoughts on this particular approach, clearly in a sense, Maynard's trying to find a way to make the band, the big band, a viable entity using some different techniques. So whoever wants to jump in, let's just talk a little bit about MF Horn. Oh, I'll jump in. I got a lot to say about Uncle Maynard. Uh, <laughs> fucking, um... You know, one of my childhood memories, this is like the first jazz album, actually, Patrick, I ever listened to was because my younger brother, who uh, just had a birthday, and so we're the same age for a month, uh, we're both 29, my younger brother played trumpet in jazz band when he was in high school and became, as unfortunately so many high school jazz trumpeters do, infatuated with Maynard Ferguson, and we had a, we had a, a disc we had you know a record that he would love to play and then my brother's favorite game was to play it at 78 instead of 33 and a third um at which point it sounds like someone has maynard ferguson's nuts in a vice it's really extraordinary it's like he's he's calling out to squirrels it's really uncanny so yeah does the man have any dynamic control so i mean to me it's kind of interesting this is like a throwback to mulligan right maynard ferguson as far as i can tell on this and all his other big band albums what he's doing is he's selling big bands through the high wire act of a single solo performer it's all maynard all the time and he's got that fortissimo he's got that high note and he's just going to kill that shit as often as he can and that's what's going to sell this stuff taste be damned i mean is it me or does he go a little sharp on macarthur park on some of his high notes or is he flat or is it just my ears are my eardrums are running out of my head at this point i can't tell anymore yeah this just after the juicy ensemble goodness of fad lewis and 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 mel we get this which is (laughs) that jones mel lewis whomever i said we get this which is just to me all of his Every time I listen to a Maynard Ferguson album, it seems like a monument to his ego. Can you imagine these albums without him on them? Oh, I can. What would I, they be? I, I actually like this one pretty well. I, I can, but <laughs> you, you, you might like it if he wasn't there. I mean, it's not that he's not an amazing player. It's just, Jesus. <laughs> Can you play soft no. once in a while? How no. about a low note? How about let someone else solo? You know. I felt like on the, on the ballads, I, I thought he actually did kind of rein it in a little bit. I thought he was about to get. <laughs> I thought he was about to really get going crazy on the ballad to Max, but he never quite right. did. 
Kenny so, Wheeler had you know, a gun. He, he showed but, a little you know, restraint for for a second. You know, his restraint by comparison makes Cootie Williams. You know, I mean, <laughs> I don't take on. Cootie's name in vain. No, I, mean, I, take, I, I take your point. I take your point. What surprised me, not to get off topic, but I had honestly never heard Maynard play valve trombone before, mm-hmm. and. I was expecting him to try to see how high he could make that instrument go. And <laughs> as, a, as a trombonist, he really kind of kept it straight ahead. It just really kind of seemed like an alter ego for him, truly, instead of like, I'm going to try to play the valve trombone four octaves higher than it's meant to be played. It's like that drug they put you on to get you off heroin, right? It's a substitute, but it's not as harmful. And yeah, <laughs> to be honest, as I went back to this, and this is just one that I had not listened to for 30 years, but had listened to several times as a kid. He does let saxophones get a good look in here. A couple of the saxophones get a solo fairly extensively. I think the thing is, is that not only does Maynard solo on every song, but then he also dominates the ensembles on most songs. So yes. when it's a chorus, you know, and we're hearing the theme to make Arthur Park again, it, it's him. It's like he's there and the rest of the band yes. is, is also there, but he's kind of standing on top of them and just blaring over them. He moved units with this. So I, I think that to my take on this has been that he is one is that people understood who were not necessarily jazz fans. Wow, he's really playing high. That is something that just anybody can get. You know, it, it's amazing that he can do it. And so there was that kind of, I don't know, wow factor, surprise factor in that. And then there is more of a rock vibe, I feel like, in these recordings. There's more of a sense mm. that we are in the, the, the early 70s, almost late 60s moment. Some of the rhythms and, of course, some of the tunes where he is trying to hit a little bit broader audience here in terms of people that, and I certainly started this way, is listening to jazz. They're like, where's the melody? Is there something I recognize here? There wasn't Eli's coming, as you know, as we explained earlier. You know, later on, I found out. But, but you know, <laughs> what... What can I hang on here to? Because if you're not born with the ability to understand improvisation on harmonies, the first thing at least I began with was melody. You know, what what do I know? And Maynard was certainly somebody who would play melodies that everybody'd heard. And for me, at least compared to his other ones, the writing on this, the ensemble sound is fine. It's just that there's Maynard. You know, if you could, if I could take that one track off, can you imagine just Kenny Wheeler being substituted? (laughs) You know, kind of. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, just a little. I'm gonna play a glancing figure here, 14 octaves lower, and see. Does, does Maynard even own a mute? Yeah, well, just, again, he is. It, it's right. He he's got one gear, and no, this is this is not an album to teach you about the nuances of playing trumpet. But I, I do find it interesting. For one thing, it is one that I think the writing is actually interesting on, where some of the other ones are just kind of sledgehammers. I cannot excuse MacArthur Park or explain it. It's just. Every time it came on in the mixer, I was like, oh boy. But some of the other tunes I think are cool. Well, my problem listening to this was, and I've talked about this in the podcast before, I throw everything into a a playlist and then I just put it on random and I listen to stuff as it comes up. And the Fat Jones, Mel Lewis stuff was always fascinating because it gave room for different voices and and you could hear, you know, it was never just, you know, the same two guys, you know, it was always different people. 
and every Maynard Ferguson song is Maynard Ferguson. And even when there is another voice, that's not what you remember because Maynard, it, it's like it's like someone's idea of of chili is to put in as much hot sauce as you possibly can. There's no room for any other subtle flavors or anything. It's just more hot sauce, more hot sauce. And and by comparison, I mean, I take your point that this is this is maybe for you, Maynard, at his most subtle, uh, well, Maynard at his best. Not, not necessarily Maynard. Um, yeah. <laughs> Maynard's always Maynard. Yeah. But but in this but in this particular podcast setting, he does not come off well. He looks like like he's he looks like the trumpet equivalent of like a cock rock guitarist. Oh, yeah. And he makes he makes Thad look like Picasso or I mean, he just it's just light years away. And it doesn't it's not a good comparison for Maynard. You know, this is not this is not the setting in which the jewel of his high C should be placed. Thad is just a better improviser, but a lesser known improviser. That is the paradox here is that by making Maynard's albums were all about a brand. My God, they all have the same name for a while. MF Horn 2, MF Horn 3. He was really canny at building a brand that people got, and that brand was there. You couldn't miss it. You know, somebody who never listened to music before would very quickly catch on what the deal was. There's this guy that plays trumpet notes really high. Because, again, my sense is that economically, this worked out for him pretty well. And, and that these albums, you know, as, as a kid in the 80s trying to find out about jazz, if you going to the mall store, I wasn't running across Thad Jones and Mel Lewis album. But Maynard Ferguson was all over the place, and it scarred me for life. But but you know there it was. So I just thought it was worth throwing that in as you know what how did how do you deal with this? Well, Maynard found a way. Be Maynard on every single track relentlessly, and kind of make it a cult of personality, uh, even if the personality wasn't that interesting. Did you have any other thoughts on this uh, album before we move on, Eric? Um, I've never heard sitar with a big band yeah. before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, uh, you didn't mention, but but Don Ellis there in the 60s, like Electric Bath, I think is the one that I tend to think of. There was that attempt to blend some big band. And at one point, is it Maynard making sounds that are like a parody of an Indian instrument on his trumpet? There are moments I wasn't sure when there was sitar and when it was Maynard doing things that were probably actionable in a court of law to his trumpet. Oh, you know what? I I would have to listen again, but I think maybe he does play a muted solo on there. And I don't think he's trying. I think he's just playing in the same kind of modality of the the sitar, you know, this, this whole tune. I think most of the soloists are, but yeah, I think he might own a mute, or he may have just borrowed one from. Him. I'm <laughs> not sure. <laughs> and the well, other thought, the other thought ahead. I had was, I'm just, I was grateful that we didn't have to hear the lyrics to <laughs> MacArthur Park. And I gotta tell you, but don't they run through your head oh, as yeah. you hear Maynard voice oh, them? I mean. Yes, it's a bunch of stuff about a cake. Oh, jeez. Yeah, In the yeah. rain. And, and I actually <sighs> have grown to love Jimmy Webb, but, but that's a problematic song. So anyway, the other one was just, uh, again, somebody I ran across, not as 
prolific or well known as Maynard, but I've got a soft spot for Toshika Kiyoshi's music, I think in a sense because of the various big bands from that era that I've run across, she seems to have the biggest crush on Duke Ellington. And I've got a huge crush on Duke Ellington. So Eric pointed out that I, I kind of just randomly thought, well, I want to pick one. We've, we've already talked about one of her works. It was a double live album back when she was on RCA. And they certainly did right by her on sound. And they absolutely screwed her in terms of keeping her work in print. But those albums sound beautiful. So we, I picked European Memoirs, which for some reason in my database is Memories. Either a couple of these ones I bought when I stuck them in the drive, literally the uh, database would pop up Japanese. She's just obviously better known in her home country than she is here. And the work has stayed in print there off and on better than here. Uh, but this is an 82 album. It's actually the last album that that original group that she got together did. Her group does not, she, she actually plays a fair amount of piano on this one, but the, the star soloist and the co-headliners are husband Lou Tabakin, and he tends to play a lot uh, on these albums, both tenor and flute. Uh, this is actually not, uh, sometimes he gets a bit overbearing with the featuring of him. This one, I think, is a little bit better balanced. But I guess for me, if I was thinking of a big band I liked in the 70s that I'd heard of as a kid, it was Toshiko. Mike has at least been forced to listen to the uh, the Row Time album. I don't know how much other her stuff he's listened to. You've inflicted a oh, lot of Toshiko on me, and as as Eric asked us to consider what's happening in <laughs> relaxing at Zellam Z at at about four minutes and fifteen seconds. <laughs> think i have an explanation okay i think i have this so so here's what's going on eric as you may know from having listened to our podcast patrick has something that we lovingly refer to here as the blanket fort the blanket fort is where pat goes to listen to paul desmond and other white alto players play very dry martini solos but occasionally he lets in other people like phil woods phil woods has a big place in the blanket fort and Lou Tobacken, all white flute players are allowed into the blanket fort. So you heard him mention earlier Joe Farrell. So anyway, I take it that what's happening at that moment, that sound that you hear, that guttural sound, is actually Pat's amygdala, his 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 reptile brain uttering a kind of orgasmic sigh of pleasure at the sound <laughs> of Lou Tobacken's flute being wafted over the lovely arrangements of Toshiko Akiyoshi. So what you're hearing there, it's actually Pat's brain going, oh, that's what's happening. Yeah, they, they, they recorded right. me uh, as a high schooler in 82 and, and patched that in. Already, that's what Pat's amygdala sounds like. That's what his reptile brain sounds like. <laughs> so yeah, uh, one thing that Toshiko did, yeah. By the way, it's a vena, not a sitar oh, okay. on the uh, Maynard Bird, uh, which is what? A sitar? I don't know. I forget. Right. I guess another thing they're doing, both groups are doing in a sense, uh, Maynard's kind of 
cut and pasting it in. Toshika was a little bit more committed. Authentic. As bringing some other cultures into that yeah. big band tradition. So she would bring in every now and then some elements from Japanese culture and kind of integrate them or not particularly integrate them in that case, just kind of stick them in there. But some of her works uh, include this more. So have you listened to much of her stuff before, Eric? I know it's really hard to find. I mean, there's just not much out there in print. I just remember playing a few charts in college, but to be totally honest, no, I haven't owned any of her albums or come across them. But I, I did enjoy listening to this one. Yeah, I think it's one of her catchier ones. So just thoughts on European memoirs? I was just going to blurt out, uh, I mean, for me, uh, apart from the, the voice on relaxing, the, the number that kind of jumps out for me on this album, the one I like the most, is Remembering Bud, which features Toshiko more than usual. She she often, you know, her arrangements aren't piano heavy, but I remember reading somewhere, I can't remember where I read it, that she was a, a huge Bud, champ, uh, Bud Powell champion early in her career and I guess met Bud at some point, but you know, was just has has a huge Bud Powell fixation. That's kind of a thing, which is that is not the player I would think of. When you hear her play, you don't think, ah yes, Bud Powell's reincarnation. But she has this she's always had apparently this this interest in Bud Powell and and that's a really lovely number that's very piano heavy for uh her. I mean the the other albums that Pat's introduced me to uh, with this band are not they don't really feature her she creates voicings that especially feature Lou Tobacco but you know seem to be a little woodwind heavy and this is just I think it's beautiful I think it's lavish and lush and and uh, contemplative I, I really like it but maybe because it's an outlier in terms of the things I've heard her do with this with this band on the four or five albums that Pat's kind of brought to my attention so that one kind of jumped out at me the other stuff I like. I, I think she's really accomplished, and I really enjoy the arrangements. But but that's the one, and maybe because it's so different in my mind, that kind of sticks out. It's just kind of this lovely Valentine uh, to presumably that's the the bud she's talking I, I about. Guess, I think so. Yeah, yeah I, that one was to me. Um, and also, I read that that arrangement was nominated for a Grammy in 1983. It didn't win, but it was nominated. But mm. what was interesting to me about that arrangement was I can't think of another big band piece that alternates back and forth between ensemble and pure solo piano as much as this one does several times. So I found that interesting. I really liked Feast in Milano. What jumped out at me was I can't think of another big band chart that has that. Technically, it's 15-8, according to the album, is the time signature. But to me, when I listened to it, it felt like it was in 5-4 with like this really heavy triplet underpinning. And yeah, it was interesting. I've never heard anything like that before groove-wise. And because of the piccolo, mostly, I think, but mm. the, inst the instrumentation and the arranging of that one reminded me just a little bit of Quincy Jones' soul bossa nova at times. Ah, okay. Just, just with the sound, not not with the feel at all, just the, the overall sound. 
it's for, one, for her for her arrangements that's a really kind of bass or or low low it's got a heavy bass uh, i don't mean the bass itself i mean the 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 low the the brass i don't know if it sounds like there's a tuba on there or something and for her that that that's a little bit uncommon i think uh, on that particular is it a tuba pat do you know you know i don't and I love the fact that it was basically written about a really good meal out they enjoyed. <laughs> That's awesome. Great food. I think I write a tune. And that yeah, that one I just think is very charismatic and rollicking. And I just yes. I, it's one of my favorite performances by that band. And I think one reason this that and of course remembering Bud popped into my head. Yeah, she she's somebody that I, I've noticed because she did like ten albums with this original group and then a few more. And I've over the years accumulated them but you know mosaic put the first five records in print for a while as a three disc set i think that's probably out of print again it's just oddly you know i i picked up long yellow road in a mall record store and always liked that record a lot even though there's some weird interludes right there's some japanese stuff in there along with the quote-unquote big band stuff but it's just Again, a legacy that's almost completely gone. And I, I kind of think of her, the more I've read about Mel Lewis, that Jones is she was kind of the West Coast version of that. It was, I think, largely studio cats who were based out West instead of in the East. And it was a little bit more focused, I guess, on just her as a writer or ranger. But most records, you know, she's going to have a blues in there. She's going to have at least one tune based on familiar chord changes and then she might throw in a suit that uh, or suite that's you know uh, a little bit more ambitious and more through writing. The the two piece thing about Germany, which is fascinating for me coming from a Japanese person, you know that part of the yeah. axis. And of course, obviously the legacy she was living with was what happened at Hiroshima and you know what happened at the end of the war there. But the two faces of Germany, right, the the happy face and the dark the dark face, that that long piece. Yeah. I thought that was it was an incredibly ambitious thing to try to musically capture those those sentiments. Right. And I'm not sure if anybody could do it successfully, but I, I certainly didn't feel like after I listened to those that I, I really felt <laughs> that 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 was conveyed necessarily. Yeah, Mike loves programmatic music, and uh, he he always likes it when people try to. <laughs> <laughs> We're probably going to do a show on this soon. It bothers him so much, and I yeah. Right. You listen. And in a sense, you wonder, is that part of the wisdom of the Thad Jones and Mel Lewis group that for the most part, balance scales, equal justice aside, you know, they're not trying to make programmatic or political statements with their music. They're letting the music speak for itself. I think that temptation to say, well, this is about this or, you know, this piece of music is supposed to represent this cultural moment or this political moment. It's just it's so subjective, did it? You know, I mean, I guess it gets a little bit ominous at the beginning of this part two. You hear the drum rolls, but I, I don't necessarily think Nazi, Nazi, Nazi for the second half. And I don't know what, I don't, beer garden, beer garden, beer garden for the first. I don't know, whatever, you know, Gerta, 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 whatever you think the great things Germany has brought us. So, yeah, it's, it's, that was a, that's a little bit trickier. And she will attempt these, which I don't know, was, was, were they happy with this, you know, kind of five to 12 minute, Writing for the most part, my sense is from the early albums, Thad Jones, Mel Lewis is they're kind of comfortable with the idea of the song. You know, there'd be a head, there would be solos, there'd be an outro, there'd be some interesting backgrounds, amazing harmonies, but I don't get the sense they're trying for multi-part or morphing songs through composed stuff where there's different sections and it's like a pocket symphony rather than 
what we tend to think of as a standard 32 bar or whatever had solos had you you obviously know their work a lot better than us what's your sense did they attempt anything like this kind of sweet writing or was it mostly song i would say mostly tunes that you know with standard forms like aaba 32 bar things there was an album in 1975 that was thematic it was called sweet for pops Mm. which was written and i think it may have been commissioned by the nea at the time which was a tribute to louis armstrong shortly after he died okay and um definitely with brooke meyer and jim mcneely in later years there's a little more through composition for sure and there was this kind of oddball album they did with a guy named manuel de sica in italy that he wrote a three-part suite but we won't count that i'm just i'm flipping through everything of theirs and okay yeah, I'm, re- I'm really, other than that sweet for Pops for Louis Armstrong, it was all pretty much one-offs. Cool. With that. a lot we're still trying to understand this group and i I will i'm going to follow a couple of your recommendations and try to track down the records you know uh beyond the ones we've heard to get to know the group a little bit better but as i said a big blind spot for me and it was really great finding out about them and thank you for coming on the show we really appreciate it you survived (laughs) (laughs) it was a lot of fun thanks for having me on awesome And that concludes episode 128 of the Jazz Bastard podcast. Many thanks to our special guest, Eric Allen. He is the co-author of 50 Years at the Village Vanguard, Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, and the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. The book is available exclusively from skydeckmusic.com. That's skydeckmusic.com. So if you'd like to pick up a copy, that's where to go. As always, to reach us, you can email mike at jazzbastard.com or pat at jazzbastard.com, or you can contact us on our Facebook page, or if you'd like, send me a message at All About Jazz. In just two episodes, it'll be our five-year anniversary, and if you'd like to get us something nice, you could rate us on iTunes, or just drop us a line at any of the places we've mentioned. We'd love to hear from you compliments, criticisms, ideas for future shows, ideas for musicians we've skipped, albums you'd like discussed, anything like that, we're always eager to hear about it. Tune in next time as we celebrate Thelonious Monk's centennial by discussing a recently uh, reissued recording of his, as well as tribute works by Dave Zoller, The Monkestra, and Plays Monk, a trio uh, of clarinet, bass, and drums. Until next time, take care.